Hello, everyone. My name is Caroline Rose, and this is the latest episode of Contours, a New Lines Institute for Policy and Strategy podcast that explores the intersection of U.S. foreign policy and global geopolitics. For today's episode, we explore the recent Russian military buildup in Belarus and gauge its potential for a renewed offensive against the Ukrainian capital, Kyiv. On October 10th, Russia announced it was deploying troops to Belarus under regional group of forces mechanism, a Russian-Belarusian understanding since the early 2000s that Russia and Belarus would mobilize its forces in the face of a military threat. About five days later, Russia began mobilizing its forces and equipment like fighter jets, 170 tanks, 200 armored vehicles, and other equipment to Belarus. There are few better people to discuss this shift in battleground realities than Sim Tak, a geopolitical and military analyst at Force Analysis. His activities are centered around intelligence-driven approaches to the study of armed conflicts and military capabilities, as well as other resources of power that support foreign policy behavior. Sim, welcome back to Contours. It's great to have you. I want to start off and gauge the potential for this mobilization. This is, of course, a very tough feat since throughout this war, we've encountered many surprises that have challenged our assumptions about operational capacities on both sides. Of course, there are a lot of risks and costs at hand here for both Putin and Lukashenko. The core of the regional group of forces mechanism is expected to be comprised of Belarusian troops. And of course, we're not sure exactly how many forces have been deployed. Some say that Lukashenko can call up to a few thousand contract soldiers, but again, anything here is possible. And I want to ask, what are you seeing on the ground through the satellite imagery that you're reviewing and, of course, you know, the other research that you're conducting? What are the battleground realities that are starting to come into play here? First off, hi, Caroline. Thanks for having me over again. It's always a pleasure. So, yeah, there's been some really interesting developments when it comes to the, the Russian deployments to Belarus. And so, yeah, first of what we've been seeing in terms of direct observations, of course, we've seen transports of Russian equipment going into Belarus. We've also seen increased transports of Belarusian equipment being moved around the country, actually, which is interesting of itself. In addition to that, through satellite imagery, we've seen increased Russian activities at the various air bases in Belarus where they are located. So this includes kind of an increased air defense posture in a lot of places. So Russia already had deployed air defense systems at a lot of these southern air bases, which of course cover more than just Belarus, but extend into Ukraine with their range. But we're seeing now in the past few weeks, we've seen Russia prepare new positions for radar systems. We've seen some different levels of air defense, like TOR air defense systems and Panzer air defense systems being added to other deployments. So all of this signals kind of an, a general improvement of that posture. And that comes in addition to, of course, also some Russian aircraft being added to the air bases where they were already operating. So this matches pretty much the developments that we've seen on the ground with that additional equipment being sent by rail and the reports of Russian forces being deployed in Belarus. And on that note, you know, some have raised the possibility of this buildup in Belarus coming at, you know, the expense of other deployments further east in Ukraine. 
Are you seeing a major shift or does this seem to be a balanced attempt at reinforcement? And do you think that there could be any constraints to further build up if Russian and Belarusian forces continue this trajectory? Well, I think there are already some severe constraints on anything Russia is doing in the military domain. So some people are talking about 9,000 Russian troops being headed for Belarus or, or already there. That takes away a lot of capacity that could be very useful to Russia on the battlefield in Ukraine. So obviously there's a cost to doing this. And that starts to raise some questions about, you know, what exactly is behind it? Why is this deployment so important that Russia can afford to withhold forces from other fronts? I, I think maybe to some degree, Russia is benefiting from the recent mobilization to free up numbers to do something like this. Of course, that mobilization, while it boosts numbers, a lot of people have already pointed out how the quality of these forces is, is much worse than the type of forces that Russia started this war with. People are being sent to the front or to deployments in Belarus, probably with little to no training, with lacking equipment. So, you know, all of the constraints that have been imposed on Russia's military throughout the war in Ukraine, those are definitely still present in what they are doing now in Belarus. I want to kind of dive a little into some of the political constraints and some of the trade-offs that Lukashenko and Putin are, are, are both, of course, going to have to confront if they do choose to renew this offensive on Kiev. And an August 2022 poll conducted by Chatham House found that just 3% of Belarusians supported their country's participation in this war in Ukraine. And there's also, of course, been indications that Belarusian opposition groups will push back quite hard against the Lukashenko regime if it chooses to, of course, side with Russia in Ukraine and send forces. And also indications that there could be a surge in drafted personnel fleeing the countries and dodging the draft, potentially switching sides to join the Ukrainian army as well. So, of course, there are similar political concerns and draft dodging risks that exist in Russia. Can you walk us through this cost benefit calculus that's at play here? What does Putin and Lukashenko have to sacrifice in order to launch a successful offensive in northern Ukraine? And what do you think are some of the perhaps battlefield imperatives and operational comparatives that might outweigh these constraints? So first off, there's a big question about how successful such an effort could even be, even if there were no political constraints. So that this is, even in the best of cases, a very big gamble, I think. But but you're absolutely right. There's a lot of reasons why something like this becomes very sensitive within Belarus and to a lesser degree within Russia. But we've seen Belarus over the past year struggle since the last elections in Belarus, struggle to control the public opinion. Obviously, a lot of the people of Belarus are not behind Lukashenko and his regime, even though they haven't managed to actually unseat him through continued protest actions. The reality is that conducting a war at this kind of scale, which would still require a very significant mobilization on Belarus's part to be notable, that is something that is going to require cooperation of the population, going to require participation, I'll put it that way. And as you put it, many people are fleeing. I also want to refer back to an earlier period in the Russian invasion of Ukraine, when in the very beginning of the war, it seemed like Belarus was actually 
going to start to take part. And I know from some reports from the ground that there were actually, in fact, at some point, Belarusian forces on Ukrainian soil in the beginning of the war as well, albeit in very limited numbers. But at the time, it seemed that the reason Belarus didn't manage to take that any further was that there was very significant resistance within the military to conducting such an operation to the point where actual military leadership started to resign or or to simply resist orders. And this started to put Lukashenko in a very difficult position because the, the last thing he wants to do is force a coup against himself. The security forces of Belarus are the only thing that have kept him in power. And I think the the Belarusian security forces are also very aware at this point of the fate of Russian forces inside Ukraine. And they're, they're not exactly waiting to become a part of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. There are many certainly operational and political costs at play. I want to shift a little bit into a question that I think many analysts have been asking themselves throughout this intervention, and it's the question of supply lines. And, you know, we talked a bit about buildup and the, you know, signs of of reinforcement inside of Belarus. But as we've learned throughout this war, that one of the main Achilles heels and, and blind spots for Russia has been adequate supply lines and reinforcements. Are you flooring this in the footage and open source intelligence? And, and what is it telling you? Are we seeing any shift of supplies, equipment and reinforces and, and fuel from the foothold in the east? Do you think that, let's say, Russia does decide to take the risk and to renew this offensive? Are we going to see similar problems that we witnessed earlier this past year with Russian forces being undersupplied, under-equipped and under-trained? So in the east and and south of Ukraine, so the the current battle space, to put it that way, we've seen Russia adjust its practices when it comes to logistics, because not only have they been very unprepared at the beginning of the conflict and, and it became a real problem in them being able to sustain offensive operations. But after that, especially since around June, I believe, when when we've had the, the HIMARS arrive in Ukraine, for example, Ukrainians have been able to to very effectively disrupt the whatever logistical system existed behind Russian lines as well. So they've essentially pushed back some of those core logistical depots farther away from the front. And something that we see very clearly in, in satellite imagery, for example, is that Rather than having the um, the usual depots for fuel and ammunitions that we used to see about 30 kilometers behind the front, give or take, the beginning of the conflict, those are now pushed back to 60, 70 or even further kilometers behind the front line, trying to stay outside of that range of the HIMARS. And that is causing the Russians to run very a very vulnerable and very light supply line over that whole distance where, you know, in some places we see trucks meeting up halfway and and logistics units from various echelons meet somewhere in the middle to transfer supplies from one truck to another and and drive it on to the front, which of course means that Russia is still able to continue to supply its forces in the front line, but it it becomes a much less flexible logistical system. So it it means that if there is any kind of disruption with, with this kind of an just-in-time logistics system, so to speak, any kind of disruption will immediately have an effect on the front line. 
Now, that's what we've seen in, in, in the current fighting. But when we're talking about Belarus and, and what that might change to that logistical situation if they open a new offensive toward Ukraine, I think one of the things to keep in mind there is that at various phases through the conflict, we've seen Belarus act as an additional logistical depot for Russia. So, of course, initially during the beginning of the war, when Russian forces invaded Ukraine towards Kiev and Chernihiv from the territory of Belarus, obviously those Belarusian logistics were supporting them. But we've also seen after that, uh, once Russia withdrew from those offensives, that at certain times they have started to take ammunitions out of Belarusian supply depots, get old reserve equipment out of the reserve depots in Belarus, bring those into Russia to supply the Russian forces on other fronts, right? So Belarus kind of became this this additional logistical reserve. Now, if they start a new offensive out of Belarusian territory, that means that, first of all, Russia is negating the use of that kind of a reserve for other forces that are fighting in other sectors of Ukraine. And it also means that the the limits of that logistical support will probably fairly rapidly be reached if, if a new offensive is, is drawing on it with its full weight. Absolutely. There, there definitely are some trade-offs there. They do choose to renew this offensive from Belarus. And that's a really great point about that key trade-off with using Belarus as a reserve. Now, Sim, you and I have talked about this before. You've written about this for, for New Lines. And I know we've had some podcasts in the past where we've discussed, of course, the the possibility of there is no intervention, there is no renewed offensive. And of course, there are other motives uh, for, for Russian and Belarusian political leadership. And think a lot about, I guess you could call it simpler times, back in spring of 2021, when Russian forces did mobilize along the border, but of course did not launch an offensive. And there was this big buildup. It of course, attract a lot of concern, a lot of attention, and then they they incrementally drew down. And there was a political calculus behind that. Let's say in this case, Russia and, and Belarus are not designing a renewed offensive against Kiev. What do you think this could be? What do you think the intention is behind it? There has been some discussion, of course, about this could be a training opportunity for unexperienced officer corps and and soldiers in the fields. This could be tests to essentially try and mobilize, see how fast they can get equipment to a location, participate in joint trainings, and then go home. How What, what do you think the alternative strategy might be for Russia and Belarus? So I think one big scenario to keep in mind here relates to a lot of the the different threats that Russia has been making toward the West. And, of course, the the big thing that's been hanging over everyone's head here is is the nuclear issue. Will Russia, as they have claimed, be willing to escalate to a nuclear level, whether that means the use of tactical nukes on the battlefield in Ukraine or or even something more significant? One thing to, to be aware of there is that even when you're talking about a nuclear threat, conventional capabilities play an extremely big part in that. So I think there are two different scenarios here where one hinges upon Russia wanting to use nuclear weapons on the battlefield in Ukraine and the other being more about that nuclear threat directly towards NATO. Let's just put it put it bluntly that way. I think that's a very unrealistic 
scenario. At least I hope that Russia is, is not considering anything. Not that I hope it's considering using tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine, of course, but I think that's a whole different level of problems that Russia would be bringing on. But as it is threatening the use of these nuclear weapons, the West is, of course, looking for indicators, looking at how Russia is behaving, not only in the strategic forces. So people are tracking the activities of Russian submarines, of the Russian bomber fleets, any activities related to the ICBMs to see, you know, could Russia possibly be preparing for nuclear operations? And one of the big indicators in that also includes the the conventional deterrence, because I think it's pretty clear at this point from statements that have been made and that have been leaked out of NATO even if Russia were were to target only Ukraine with nuclear weapons, there's an expectation that there would be some kind of a military response from NATO to essentially establish a red line. We won't accept the use of nuclear weapons in any capacity. What that response will be is not exactly clear, but I think that any kind of deployment to Belarus could potentially fit within an, an additional conventional deterrent that Russia is imposing to try and discourage NATO from any type of retaliatory action. Or if we want to go, you know, layers within layers of, of this kind of thinking, it might be that Russia doesn't think it's a nuclear threat is credible if it doesn't impose any kind of deterrent that it should technically have in place if it were to realistically expect a NATO response to nuclear action. If that makes sense, that was kind of a convoluted sentence. This is a convoluted buildup for sure. And, and it's very difficult to read the tea leaves and identify exactly what the intentions are at play here. I, I'd also like to ask whether you think this also could be an attempt for Russia to redirect and perhaps distract Ukrainian forces and draw them from the east and, and try and concentrate them in the north. Of course, there's been a big push to really build up the defenses in the north. And so certainly that's not a front that, you, that Ukraine has ignored. But do you think this could be a distraction tactic on, on the ground? That's definitely a possibility. And that, that's something that has come up several times after Russia abandoned the offensives on Kiev and Chernihiv. There have been different times when, when that threat of renewed offensive from Belarus, as well as renewed offensives in the, the Sumy region and the Kharkiv region where they had withdrawn, those those kind of things tend to flare up from time to time uh, as a way to possibly distract the Ukrainian effort. I think realistically, however, we know that Ukraine has kept forces on that northern border. They have not completely shifted anything away. They are very aware of that potential risk. They don't want to open themselves up to that. We also We also know that whatever capacity... Russia has at this point to mount an additional offensive from Kiev is, is, uh, or towards Kiev is essentially going to split up the Russian effort again, while Ukraine is still allowed to maneuver on its interior lines, meaning that they they require less of an effort, less time to shift forces around within their own country, within their own borders than Russia does to actually move forces and resources all around the borders of Ukraine. So this is a game that eventually, I think, plays out to the disadvantage of Russia. And and I think as, as long as Ukraine is, is health prepared for that kind of a potential, they'll have a very good opportunity or, or a very good chance to, to kind of manage that without really risking their operations in other fronts. 
Certainly. And you you mentioned a bit about this in, in your previous response, but I, I want to ask, how can the United States and NATO best play its cards here, you know, with the potential for this with this offensive? And of course, looking to the playbook that was established in the early days of Russia's war in Ukraine, where the United States and its partners worked extremely hard to promote transparency and reveal intelligence that showed that Russia was indeed planning an offensive. Do you think the United States, particularly the intelligence community, the IC, can replicate that strategy that they put in place earlier this year, especially in regards to disclosing this intelligence? And do you think there are other strategies that Washington and its partners would be best to follow? Personally, I think that the the whole context of sharing that kind of intelligence, at, at least publicly, changes dramatically once you make that qualitative shift from being in a threat of war situation to being in an active war situation, right? So while while it makes a lot of sense, the, the strategy that the U.S. maintained at the end of last year and, and the beginning of this year before the offensive in trying to expose as much of the activities that Russia was undertaking, I think now that we are in an active war situation, that intelligence is probably more valuable for, you know, potential operational preparations and targeting than it is to shape the public opinion. Because any kind of intelligence of this sort that is made public now also alerts Russia to knowledge about its particular movements, about particular positions that it has taken up. And at, at this point in time, that might not be the right signal to send. That, that kind of information could probably be used better in other ways. But that doesn't mean that NATO and the U.S., you know, can't do anything here. And I think the biggest the biggest role for NATO here is to effectively draw a line and stick to it. They they have been very afraid of escalation, and there are of course immense risks associated with various kinds of escalation of the the conflict in Ukraine. But at some point, we also need to realize that first off, the conflict is heading in a certain direction, which currently isn't in favor of Ukraine. If we want to maintain that direction, we do need to close off certain approaches for Russia. And especially when it comes to the threat of using nuclear weapons, I don't think NATO can give one inch to Russia in, in terms of even letting them believe that they might get away with the use of nuclear weapons, because obviously that would not only potentially change the battlefield in Ukraine, but it brings us in a very different world where you know, not only have we returned to a Europe where borders are being changed by military means, but we are actually going back or, or rather arriving at a very new reality where nuclear weapons are being used in an offensive capacity. Absolutely. I just want to thank you, Sim, for these excellent insights on the recent Russian-Belarusian military buildup and signs of a potential renewed offensive in Ukraine. Really, really learned a lot. And, and I want to also thank our audience for tuning into this latest episode of Contours, a New Lines Institute for Policy and Strategy podcast series on the intersection of U.S. policy and global geopolitics. Please, everyone, take care and, and have a lovely rest of your week. And thank you once again to Sim.